Good evening. I'd like to welcome everybody to my Gresham College lecture on critical thinking. So this is the fifth in a series called Business Skills for the 21st Century. The first four were on time management, finding purpose in your career, public speaking, and mental and physical wellness. And if they're of interest, they're on the Gresham College website or on YouTube. So you might think it's strange for a professor of finance to be speaking about such topics, but why I've chosen to speak about them is the realization that some of the most important skills in business are actually not taught in business school. And actually, they're relevant to any career, even for those of you who are not in business careers. And even those of you who are not working at the moment, either you're retired or still at school, hopefully all of these skills will be relevant. And critical thinking is something of particular relevance today. So I came up with these lecture titles about a year ago. I never knew that I would we would be in a coronavirus crisis filled with misinformation, but that's unfortunately where we are. And so hopefully this will be quite relevant to today. Now, most of the talk will not be on coronavirus. Why? Because you've heard about it a lot anyway. So I wanted to talk about something quite different, but hopefully you could immediately see the application to the crisis. And speaking on the crisis, I just hope that everybody's well. And I really appreciate you choosing to listen to this talk and give an hour when there's a lot of things going on. Now, what I'm going to do in this talk is to start with many examples of cognitive mistakes, mistakes that people have made, and then talk about how to address them. So because at the start of the talk, I need to highlight the mistakes I will need to use some examples where these mistakes were made. And these will be from some books and sometimes from some government documents. Now, let me be very clear that I'm choosing these examples not to bash them and be negative, but just to highlight the problem. So in Sun Zhu's book, The Art of War, the main principle there is know your enemy. But we need to know the problem in order to diagnose the solution. And so I need to highlight the errors that we make in critical thinking in order to discuss how to address them. And the books and so on that I've chosen are our best-selling books. And why that's again deliberate, it would be easy for me to bash a very flimsy study, but these have been really influential, but because even influential books might make cognitive mistakes, this highlights the need to try to address them. So the purpose of this talk is to be entirely constructive. So companies underperform and economies stagnate and societies malfunction. And if improving performance was as easy as claimed by some viral talks or some best-selling books, we wouldn't see such underperformance. So the fact that we do suggests that many people might be following conclusions where they're not actually backed up by the evidence. And so if some of the talk piece, these parts of the talk appear a bit sharp, that's only to highlight the severity of failures in critical thinking and therefore to accentuate the need to address them. OK, so let me start by sharing uh, four different um, statements with you. One of them is that equality is better for everyone. That's the subtitle of a really famous book uh, called The Spirit Level. The second is the claim that CEO pay packages actively discourage innovation. The third is that the outperformance of ESG strategies is beyond doubt. ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. So this claims that ethical investing outperforms. 
And the final one is coronavirus may have infected half of the UK population. So all four statements have three things in common. So the first is they all claim to be backed up by evidence and research. The second is these are all statements that we would like to be true. We'd like to believe that equal societies perform better. We'd like to believe that ethical investing pays off. We'd like to believe that half the population has already had coronavirus because then we might be immune and we can end the lockdown. And we also would like to believe that CEO pay packages cause bad actions because many people think that CEO pay is crooked and corrupt. And so people are inclined to believe it has these unintended consequences. But what is the third thing that these all have in common? It's that they are actually not backed up by the evidence as they claim. And that's actually linked to the second problem that we would like to believe them. That's why these statements have been accepted uncritically, even though the evidence is weak, because we would like them to be true. And so this is a phenomenon known as confirmation bias, the temptation to accept anything which confirms our prior belief and reject any study or piece of evidence if it contradicts us. And so that's the topic I talked about in a TED talk uh, two years ago called What to trust in a post-truth world on confirmation bias. Now, if you've seen that talk, don't worry, this talk will be almost entirely new. I'm deliberately using very different examples and going much deeper into confirmation bias today, but I just raised this because if anybody else after this talk wants further examples of confirmation bias, uh, please go to that one. Okay, so confirmation bias, what I'm going to talk about now, I'll start with, is the neurological basis for confirmation bias. Why do we suffer so much from this problem? And I'm going to talk about a study which had some people and they put their brains in a MRI scanner to see what happened to their brains when they were given certain statements. So some statements they were given were statements which are quite emotive. These are statements of opinion, such as the death penalty should be abolished or gay marriage should be legal. And they specifically chose statements that those subjects did agree with. And they're also statements which are factual, but not emotive. Right. So the primary purpose of sleep is to rest the body and mind. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. So there that just doesn't provoke the same emotion. And what the researchers did is they exposed these subjects to contradictory evidence, which contradicted their prior viewpoint. And they looked at what happened in the brain and they found that the part of the brain that lights up when you hear a contradictory statement to the first two phrases was the amygdala. So that's the part of the brain that induces a fight or flight response. It's the same response that you get if you're being chased by a tiger. So this is why people are so resistant to contradictory information, is they react to this just like they'd react to it the tiger. So this is sort of the intuitive part of the brain, but it's not the deliberate part of the brain known as the prefrontal cortex. Some of you will know the book uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he talks about system one, which is the impulsive part of the brain, the amygdala. 
and system two, which is the rational part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. And so confirmation bias is system one going into overdrive. We immediately have this allergic reaction to statements that contradict our strong held beliefs. But interestingly, when there were statements which came, which contradicted the third and the fourth, those factual non-emotive statements, there was nothing happening to the brain. So it's specifically being contradicted about something where you might have an ideological view, which leads to people being quite upset. So what I'm going to do for the next parts of the talk is just talk you through areas in which confirmation bias has been prevalent. I'm going to start with some of the most basic errors and then go more and more deeply into sort of more nuanced errors where the error is still made. And then we're going to talk about how to address this. So the first, the most basic area in which confirmation bias is rife is statements are made without any evidence and these statements are just plain wrong. For example, Bernie Sanders, the US Senator says, Wall Street CEOs who help destroy the economy, they don't get police records, they get raises in their salaries. And again, people are quite predisposed to believe this because they think that Wall Street CEOs are crooked, the capitalist system is crooked, and so we would reward people who destroy the economy. But this is not at all based on any evidence. And actually, Bernie Sanders never was asked to quote any evidence, right? Because if you make such an extreme statement like this, then people think, well, that statement must be true, right? It's so obvious, I don't even need to ask him for evidence. But that's problematic because then people get away with making really extreme statements because that scares people from even asking them to deliver the evidence. And in fact, what happened here was completely the opposite. So let's take Lehman and um, Bear Stearns, which went bust. So they're the ones most likely to have destroyed the economy. Dick Fuld and Jimmy Kane, the CEOs, both lost quote, close to a billion dollars. Now, it's a fair question as to maybe they should have gone to jail as well. We could have a debate about that. But the statement that they got raises in their salaries is absolutely not true. They lost a substantial amount of money. And so why is it that this statement was believed other than confirmation bias? It's also based on who said it, Bernie Sanders, because he's a respected senator. But I'm going to come back to this again later. This is the problem of a halo effect, where if somebody is famous, people might believe them, even if they have no expertise on this particular topic. So Bernie Sanders is a great politician and policymaker, but he has not done a study of executive pay in Wall Street CEOs. Similarly, you might have heard very recently, Jurgen Klopp of Liverpool Football Club, the manager, was asked about coronavirus. And he correctly and honourably said he shouldn't say anything about coronavirus because he has no expertise. But if he said something, people would believe him just because of who he is. They think he's a great football manager, therefore he's knowledgeable. Again, that's a halo effect. That's the case where because somebody's good in one dimension, we think they're an expert on multiple dimensions. Okay, so this was the very basic um, cognitive mistake. And you might think, well, why did I need to sign on to a Gresham College lecture to think, oh, I need to check the facts? But actually, this highlights even something as basic as this got, got actually um, believed by many, many people because system one is an overdrive. Yes, the rational system two within you would think, yeah, I would have checked the facts anyway because without the need for the Gresham lecture. But actually, we don't always do that. 
when it's something emotive. Okay, let me go to something a little less obvious, which is where statements do cite evidence, but the actual evidence doesn't support the statement. So a couple of years ago, the House of Commons released a report into executive pay. And how they release these reports is they typically have an inquiry where they ask a few questions on executive pay, people submit evidence, and then the report summarises that evidence. And one of the conclusions of the report was the evidence is at best ambiguous on the impact of individual CEOs on company performance. Again, that supports what people think to be true. People like to think that CEOs don't deserve their pay. They don't have that great an effect on the company. And people might think, well, this is quoted by evidence. This is supported by evidence. There's footnote 110. And some people might not even look at that footnote. They think, okay, they're referencing something. And then people might look at, well, who are they referencing in footnote 110? It was actually me. They referenced Professor Alex Edmonds. And so there might be people thinking, hopefully, he's a trustworthy person. If he says that's right, then hopefully there's evidence backing it. But actually, my evidence didn't say anything of the sort. My evidence said CEOs with high equity incentives outperform CEOs with low equity incentives by 4 to 10% per year, and it's causation rather than correlation. So this says CEOs have a large effect on company performance, just changing their incentives significantly causes better performance. So why did they misquote me? I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not in their mind. I, I don't know what their thinking process was. But here's a case in which I was quoted as having stated something when my actual evidence was not the case. So we can't just take somebody's word for it, even if they put a footnote and a reference. And again, many people won't have questioned this because of system one. We like to believe that CEOs don't actually deserve their pay. Something even more influential than a UK government report is Malcolm Gladwell's famous book, uh, Outliers. And this book is famous for many things, but one of the most famous parts of it is the 10,000 hours rule. So the 10,000 hours rule says that if you look in any kind of cognitively complex field, from playing chess to being a neurosurgeon, we see this incredibly consistent pattern that you cannot be good at anything unless you practice for 10,000 hours which is roughly 10 years if you think about four hours a day. And this has been widely accepted. Why we'd like it to be true. Right? We'd like to believe you can do anything you set your mind to. That's what we tell kids, right? Even if you don't have natural ability or talent, you can just try and put in the effort and then you can help yourself succeed. And he quotes um, the research by Anders Ericsson. But Anders Ericsson's... Uh, research, and I read it from start to finish multiple times, says absolutely nothing about a 10,000 hours rule. It's not even on chest or neurosurgery. We'll, we'll come to that later. But if you actually look at, at Ericsson himself, he's now since written a book called Peak about what his evidence actually states. And it's not at all anything like a 10,000 hours rule. I'm going to come into this also in more detail in my next and final lecture of the series called The Growth Mindset in June. OK, so two examples where they're quoting evidence, but the evidence doesn't actually support what they claim. So these are examples where people quote others' evidence. But the next set of examples that I'm going to go, go, go through are cases in which people quote their own 
evidence. So there was a TED talk, which was titled, Want a more innovative company? Hire more women. And that was something which was immediately believed why people would like to believe that gender diversity pays off. And I'm someone who, who strongly believes in the importance of diversity on many fields. I'd certainly benefit from ethnic diversity initiatives. But if you look at the study, it doesn't actually show this at all. What it finds is that companies with um, more diversity do better. Now, one of the huge problems is causation v correlation. We're going to talk about that later. But also the measure of diversity, they actually had six measures of diversity. And only one of them was female diversity. And their results looked at the six in aggregate. So we don't know whether it was female diversity that was driving this or other forms of diversity, but because maybe this was the attractive thing to highlight, that was uh, highlighted in the title, even though the evidence only showed a mere correlation, not a causation, and only for aggregate diversity. Let's think of another study. There's a report released last year saying CEO pay packages actively discourage innovation in UK's top companies. Now, the problem with the uh, TED Talk was there was a correlation, but not causation. Here, there wasn't even a correlation, right? Why? Because uh, what the study had done is it showed that CEOs were paid with bonuses and the authors just assumed that bonuses discouraged innovation. They didn't show it. They just assumed their result. And again, this is something that can be easily checked. So one of the things I'd like to stress uh, is that checking the facts is not actually something which is that complex right here what you could do is you could just easily look into the study of innovation uh, and diversity and find well there are six measures of diversity or just looks um quickly at what's the data source that the second study did to look at innovation and there's no data source because they never studied the effect on innovation that you can do in a couple of minutes okay so I'm going to go to uh, deeper into more serious and more subtle forms of confirmation bias. And this is something which I'm calling the narrative fallacy. So this is taken from a best-selling book called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And that was something I was really predisposed to believing. A lot of my work is on purpose. So I do believe that the why is important. But unfortunately, the evidence here is actually pretty weak. So Simon Sinek's most famous example is Apple. And he says that Apple has a why, which is everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo. Well, that's actually false to begin with. Apple never said that. In no Apple document can you ever say, see Apple stating a why or a mission statement which has this. But everybody just believes Simon Sinek. And if you, can just, if you just Google this, this is attributed to Apple, even though Apple never said it. But let's just ignore that for now, because I've already talked about checking whether something is true. Let's assume that Apple did say this. Well, Simon Sinek's conclusion is that that why is what caused Apple to be successful. Apple had this mission statement and it became extremely successful because of that why. But the narrative fallacy is the idea that we weave in narratives and explanations, even if things were completely unrelated. So it may be that Apple's success was due to many, many other things than the why, but we weave in the narrative that the why caused it. Why? Because if we, ha if we have these cause and effect relationships, it helps us make sense of the world. 
right? We like to think everything happens for a reason. That's what we tell our kids. And here, if we're trying to say, well, the why is what led to the success, then that sort of helps us understand why is Apple successful. And notice that it's a particularly attractive explanation. Now, there's other factors that could have led to Apple's success, but they're less attractive. If Apple was successful because Steve Jobs is really intelligent or because Steve Jobs had some great connections, that's disempowering to the average buyer of a book because if you're not as intelligent as Steve Jobs or if you don't have the great connections, you won't be successful. But a why being the driver of success, that's really empowering because everybody believed if I could just only find my why, then I'd be um, able to launch a successful company. And so that's why we like to, to weave in particularly attractive narratives when there could be multiple alternative explanations. And also the explanation may only be valid ex post. So what I mean by this is after the fact, we force fit this explanation into um, the data that we see. Now, staying with Apple and staying with Steve Jobs, perhaps his most famous um, address talk was the 2005 graduation speech at um, Stanford University, where he said, we'd like to connect the dots going forwards, but you can only connect the dots going backwards. And what he means by this is that if you see sort of the history of a company, you might have think, well, the company started with the why in order to be successful, and then it, it was able to attract some inspired people, and it became successful. But in fact, that's not the case. It sort of muddles through and random things happen. And then in retrospect, you can claim that all of this delib was deliberate when it actually wasn't. And so just to illustrate this, let's look at this um, snooker shot. We're here. The guy tries to pop the pink into one pocket. He puts it into a completely other one. Like, he never intended this at all, but that's, again, what the narrative fallacy is, just to try to pretend that's what you aim to do to begin with. Now, why the Apple Y explanation was, was not sufficient was because it could be luck. It could be many, many other things. So you might think the solution is to study many companies. So if you find that many companies which all have the same characteristic were all successful, then that would suggest that it's that characteristic that drives the success rather than something else. So it sort of gets rid of those alternative explanations. And so uh, some other best-selling books, again, um, did this. So one was called In Search of Excellence, and there's two best-selling books by, um, by Jim Collins called Good to Great and Built to Last. And they all come up with the idea we studied many excellent companies and found they all had the following characteristics. Let's say they all had a humble leader. And so that means humble leadership leads to a company being excellent. But notice here, this is a massive error in logical reasoning. All excellent companies have humble CEOs. Doesn't mean that having a humble CEO leads to an excellent company. It's just like saying all successful CEOs have two legs. Therefore, having two legs makes you a successful CEO. That's not logical. What you need to do is to look at other CEOs with two legs, all CEOs with two legs, and to see, well, whether they are actually successful or not. Similarly here, to find these excellent companies and to see they have humble CEOs 
What you then need to do is to look at other companies outside the original successful bucket and to see whether they also have humble CEOs. And if so, well, then actually, then there is no relationship between them. Okay, and this is why, indeed, a lot of these books failed after they were published. They highlighted a number of supposedly great companies, which subsequently underperformed, because their area of logical reasoning, all successful companies have the, the, a, a common trait, doesn't mean that that common trait leads to the company being successful. You might to look at other companies with that trait and see how they performed. Okay. So let's say you were able to do that and you were able to look at companies with humble leadership, they do well, and companies with less humble leadership and they do badly. You might think, well, that should nail it. But even in that case, you haven't actually shown the result that you want to. So what the argument is, is that you think, well, A causes B. Humble leadership causes a company to be successful. But it could be that there's multiple other explanations. It could be reverse causality. It, go, it goes the other way. So successful companies are more likely to attract humble leaders. Well, maybe it's the unsuccessful companies which attract the arrogant leaders who believe they can turn it around and apply their magical touch. And also another problem is omitted variables bias. So what this means is there could be a third variable that causes both. Maybe there's no relationship between A and B, but something else is driving both of them. And so we can look at this with multiple examples. So let's take some of my own work, just to sort of point the finger at myself, is that, well, there's sustainability and there's good performance. I'd like to argue that purposeful companies or sustainable companies perform better, but it could be that better performing companies can spend money on sustainability. Or there's a third factor, such as management quality. A great CEO, she thinks about sustainability because she's forward-looking. And she also is able to make the perform for the firm perform better because she's just such a great CEO. And that can apply to anything else, sort of diversity or purpose and so on. Anything else where system one would like to believe that it's going to cause performance it might actually not. And that's why in my own work about purpose and sustainability, I need to do some other things in order to try to get uh, to a causal explanation. And again, you might think, well, I already knew before coming to this Gresham lecture that correlation doesn't imply causation. Why do I need to let, let, listen to a lecture to think this? Well, I would again just say your system too probably knows that. But in so many cases, system one goes into overdrive and you forget about this in particular when it's something which you'd like to believe to be true. And indeed, there have been loads of TED Talks and books written on the idea that diversity and so on leads to better performance when the evidence might actually be much weaker. And indeed, in the studies themselves, they will also acknowledge that correlation doesn't imply causation, but they'll bury it in a footnote and forget about it because it's much more appealing to argue that they've shown you how you can improve performance. Okay, so if you think, well, we need to try to address this issue, how might we do this? Well, people try to claim that they use techniques to find causality. And then this sort of causes the reader to accept, oh yeah, they found it and so we can believe them. And one technique is a lead-lag relationship. 
So if B occurred after A, then A must have caused B. So if sustainability today causes better performance tomorrow, then it must have caused better performance because it happened in the future. But again, that's not necessarily the case because B could have been predicted and you did A in anticipation. So I knew that performance would be good in the future. So I'm able to spend money on sustainability today because I know that I can afford it. Just like opening an umbrella doesn't cause it to rain. We open an umbrella before it starts raining, but that's because we see the clouds in the sky and we see that it might rain pretty soon. Okay, so another invalid technique to find causality is what I call smoke and mirrors or overwhelming the reader. So if you use a lot of technical jargon, then people are willing to believe that you found a relationship, particularly if system one is in overdrive and it's something you'd like to believe in. So here's something from a, a, a paper. Um, we re-examine our models using the X-stated bond two procedure in stator, which utilizes generalized methods of moments. You get the idea, I don't need to continue. But once we sort of pass out all the jargon, one thing is important. And it's a word in the middle, lags, which I've just made in bold. And lags, I just showed you that looking at lead lag relationships, what happened after something else, that is not sufficient to find causality. Okay, now, what's another invalid technique? So going back to the idea of emitted variables, there's other things that could have caused a relationship. You might think, well, let's control for that relationship. So let's go back to the spirit level, a best-selling book. Again, I would be predisposed to believing that equality is important because a lot of my work is on treating workers fairly. They claim that inequality causes many problems in the world. It causes obesity. It causes unhappiness. It causes social immobility. It causes teenage pregnancy. But the immediate answer might be, well, maybe there's an emitted veil. Maybe it's poverty. Maybe countries which have high inequality are also countries where there's high poverty. And it's poverty rather than inequality which causes all of these. And so the author's response is in a separate regression to try to address that. So what they do is they correlate poverty on the x-axis with a measure, let's say, of health and social problems on the vertical axis. And they sort of eyeball it and they think, well, it doesn't look that this relationship is as strong as the relationship of inequality. So we think inequality is what's causing this. But that's invalid for many reasons. First, you need statistical tests. You can't just say to the naked eye, this relationship looks weaker. But more seriously, basic A-level statistics tells you that in order to address an alternative explanation, you need to control for it in the same regression. You can't do a completely separate regression. And it's not only poverty. So let's say we're trying to say, does inequality cause uh, obesity? Well, inequality could be correlated with poverty, but there's other explanations. Maybe it's national diet that causes obesity. Maybe it's the amount of PE taught in schools. Maybe it's the availability of fitness facilities. You can think, it's not hard to think of any other things that could cause obesity, but the authors only think about inequality 
and they don't include any of these other things. And because of confirmation bias, because of system one, people just accepted this. That's why the book was so influential. Even some of the most sophisticated newspapers that I really respect said the evidence in this book is hard to dispute. Anybody who's doing A-level statistics would be able to reject the claims in this book. Okay, so so far you might think, well, this is rather negative. It's painted a bleak picture, right? We can't get to causal statements, but actually we can. I've written a post on my blog called A Layman's Guide to Separating Causation from Correlation. But because I've already written about this, um, I'm going to refer the interested reader to that rather than regurgitating it. Now, let me go one final level deeper into another case in which we've seen confirmation bias. And this is something which is new, and I haven't seen the term before, so I'm going to coin the term universality bias. So what do I mean by this? So all of the problems that I've spoken about so far in the first half hour of the talk are on what I'm calling internal validity. That is the arguments are internally inconsistent. So why, Apple's why may not have caused its success. There could have been many other factors. Similarly, it might not be inequality that, that caused obesity. There's other factors. So internally, that's inconsistent. Here, I'm going to talk about something different, which is external validity. So even if an argument was internally watertight, even if we could prove that Apple's why was the cause of its success and not sort of Steve Jobs' um, contacts or, or intelligence, there's still a problem because that they, this may not apply to other companies. So I call it universality bias because we try to over-extrapolate from a single story and assume that it applies everywhere. Right? This is a problem with, with case studies. I'll point the finger at my own profession. Business schools like to teach from one case study and the insights from that they claim are generally applicable. Like TED Talks and books, they all start with a story and a claim that that's generalizable. But this is not the case because it may well be that what caused some companies to be successful is their why. Other companies, it could be their technology. Other companies, they could have um, engaged in monopoly power. Other companies just had a great idea. It's very rare that we have one explanation that explains everything. But universality bias says that we like to think of single explanations that apply everywhere. We would like a theory of everything. Right. If there was one great diet, let's say the Atkins diet is a simple way to lose weight. Everybody can, um, can, can, can use that. We don't need to tailor our advice to particular people. And again, any best-selling book which says, my solution works for all of you, you're going to sell far more books than if you said, well, my solution only works for uh, those in their 30s who live in rural areas rather than urban areas. Similarly, we have these um, articles saying five ways to nail a job interview or something. And again, that's not going to apply to every people, every person, right? The way to nail a job interview, if you're an extrovert, might be different from if you're introverted. But universality bias means that we over-extrapolate from a few limited cases. Yeah. And so let's go back to uh, the book um, Outliers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Remember, he said any kind of cognitively complex field, from playing chess to being a neurosurgeon, you need 10,000 hours to become great at it. Now, Erickson's study 
quite apart from the fact it never mentioned 10,000 hours, also studied violin players. Maybe for these other fields, you need more hours or fewer hours, or maybe it's nothing to do with practice, maybe it's innate talent. So the claim that it applies to these other fields is not at all correct. But we accepted this, the 10,000 hour rule, that's a simple rule, it's just convenient if we don't need to have different rules for different situations, that's why it was so powerful. Okay, so this is linked to a, a, another book, now a fiction book, um, Alice in Wonderland, Sentence First, Verdict Afterwards. Right? If you have your one universal reason, you claim that it applies everywhere. When you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So going back to the spirit level, it claims that inequality is the cause of nearly every problem in the world. The book um, starts by saying on, on the back cover, I think, um, what, or front cover, why do we mistrust people more in the UK than in Japan? Why do Americans have higher rates of teenage pregnancy than the French? What makes the Swedish thinner than the Greeks? The answer is inequality. But that's crazy, right? It could well be that there's different explanations for these different social problems. It's extremely difficult to think there is one cause of everything that is wrong within the world. And just looking at common sense, what makes the Swedish thinner than the Greeks? Immediately obvious that there could be some alternative explanations. Maybe the diets are different. Maybe they play different sports. Maybe the temperature is different. How do we know that it's inequality? We can't go to that conclusion. But if inequality is your hammer, then you're going to claim that inequality causes every issue. OK, so, so far, you might think I've painted a, a quite bleak picture, which is that you can't trust nearly everything. So even best-selling books or even um, some powerful government documents. But I am actually not exaggerating with this. So I don't think I'm painting a bleak picture. I think I'm painting an accurate picture. Is that many things you actually cannot fully trust. Why books become best-selling is that they confirm what people would like to be true, even if it's not backed up by evidence. And also they claim universality. Why a book which claims that they're applicable to everybody is going to be bought more than a book which says, are oh, my solutions, the evidence was only studying people in their mid-30s in rural environments. So the next part is going to be the upside, the silver lining, practical tips to try to find out, well, how can we address this problem of confirmation? So the first is, um, is a statement backed up by a reference? So Bernie Sanders' statement clearly wasn't. And notice here, all of these practical tips are very simple. You don't need to be an academic insider or an expert to apply them. The second, examine the reference. So when they quoted me in the government report, you could have just easily gone to my evidence. It was linked in the report and I never said that. So it might not show what the quota claims it shows. If the quote, if, if the evidence is by the people who are actually making the quote, check whether they do that. For the diversity study, they use six measures rather than just looking at gender diversity. Are there plausible alternative explanations? And again, you don't need to be an academic insider to do this. Just common sense will tell you that why the Greeks and Swedish might have different obesity might well be due to other factors like diet. It's not just inequality, which differs between those two countries. We can also look, is it published in a top peer-reviewed journal? So why is this important? 
So there's so much research out there, and this research hugely varies in terms of quality. But one of the most famous common phrases is research shows that. Now, again, I'm pointing the finger at myself. Um, even though my profession is research as a professor, I need to acknowledge that there's a lot of research which is really weak. And to find that research shows that X doesn't convince us anything because you can find research to support almost anything you'd like it to support. Right. If I wanted to go and drink some red wine after giving this talk, I'm sure I could find some evidence that drinking red wine is good for me. And indeed, the anti-vaccination movement was backed up by some supposed research. So what matters isn't just that there's research showing it, but that that research has been published in a top peer reviewed journal. And none of the four statements that they, I started this talk with were backed up by peer reviewed research. So why is peer review so important? Well, what it involves is it involves a paper being sent to some of the world's experts on this topic who anonymously scrutinise it. They look at the methodology to see, well, does the evidence actually support the claims that authors are making? Now, again, just to find that it's in a peer review journal isn't enough because there's different standards of peer review. So sometimes the experts that they use to, um, to, to scrutinise it might not actually have expertise in the field. But there is a list, certainly in the field of, of business, of the 50 top journals in the world, which uh, the Financial Times collates. And again, it's really simple for a um, non-academic to look at the study which has been quoted and then find, well, what was it published in? And just look at the journal compared to the list. And that will be something which shows you whether it's reliable. Now, peer review is not perfect. Right? There's some papers that get published in top journals, which were lucky, which slipped, slipped through the cracks. There's other great papers which, due to some, some bad editorial decision, were unlucky. So it's not a panacea, but it's still very informative. It tells you that a, a paper is much more likely to be reliable, even though it's not absolutely definitive. And just to show you the importance of peer review, um, a study's results can actually completely overturn when it goes through the review process and it has to correct its mistakes. So a couple of years ago, there was a corporate governance inquiry by the House of Commons. That was one year before the executive pay inquiry. And I was actually a witness at this inquiry. And the witness before me, they'd submitted evidence claiming that firm productivity is negatively correlated with pay disparity between top executive and lower level employees. Simply put, the greater the inequality of pay, the worse the company performs, which people would like to be true because they think inequality is, is demotivating. And they claim this evidence. But actually, what they referred to was a half-finished paper, which hadn't actually gone through peer review. Now, the published version was indeed out, and showed completely the opposite result. It found we do not find a negative relationship between pay and productivity. Actually, firm value and operating performance increase with relative pay. But because the witness actually wanted to find a particular result, they were easily able to find a half-finished study, even though the finished version showed the opposite. And disappointingly, the House of Commons final report referred to the clear academic evidence that high wage disparity harms productivity and performance, even though I had brought to the committee's attention in my own evidence, the fact that the very paper 
had been overturned. Now, why was it overturned? Why did they change the results? Because in the peer review process, they have to correct their mistakes and the errors in their methodology. And it's critical to stress that peer review is not a rubber stamp at the top journals. It is really rigorous. And I'm going to show you how this affected one of my own papers. So one of my own papers, um, we had the idea that short-term CEO pay leads to the CEO cutting investment because she has short-term concerns. Now, my co-authors and I had the initial idea back in 2007, but there was no data set that was sufficiently reliable that we would be able to do a study that we could sort of sign our names to with integrity. But then we later found out about such data and we started the paper in January 2012. Now, we wrote the paper, but we didn't immediately start sort of putting press releases out on the paper before peer review. Unfortunately, that's what happened with the Oxford coronavirus study. Even before peer review, they were trying to market it. And again, people wanted to believe it because they like to think that actually um, people already had the coronavirus and are immune. Instead, what we did is we took it on the road to be criticised. We presented it at a lot of places and we sent it to people in the field. So as you can see, we had many people who kindly um, provided comments on the paper, what was wrong with it, what was not convincing. And we presented it at all of these conferences. And at conferences, what happens is a conference assigns a discussant, which is somebody who's tasked with the act of reading the paper beforehand and then make and then they present after you and they critique it. They show, well, what they think is wrong with the paper. And so through all of that, we spent a couple of years improving the paper. And then we sent it to a journal, the uh, Review of Financial Studies, which is one of the journals in the top 50 list. And then most papers, over 90% of papers in this journal get rejected because it's very stringent. Now, if you don't get rejected, you don't immediately get accepted. You get what's called a revise and a resubmit, where you have to revise the paper because the referees find a lot of problems with it. And then you can resubmit it again. So here we have two reviewers, one recommended rejection. The other said we should be allowed to resubmit it, but is very lukewarm, offers only a weak offer for a major revision. So they had 14 pages of criticism and the editor himself had a detailed markup of our paper. So what we had to do is completely overhaul the paper from scratch and also write a 47 page response document which explained how we had addressed all of these comments. So this shows you how much more reliable a paper is when it goes through this process. We submitted it, and it still didn't get accepted. It got given another revisory submit. We had to do some more work. And then it got conditionally accepted, where we needed to do a few more minor things. And then it finally got accepted in December 2016 and published in, Jan in July 2017. So 10 years after we first had the idea and five years after we started the paper. Now, that five year lag is not at all unusual for a paper published in a, a top peer reviewed journal. So the other thing that you can do is to examine the authors. So what are the author's credentials in the relevant field. And so we have to be really careful here of halo effects. So the fact that somebody um, is famous doesn't necessarily, or doesn't necessarily mean that they have expertise in that particular field. Uh, for example, let's take, say, um, Larry Fink. So Larry Fink is a fantastic investor. 
Um, but he's made a lot of statements saying um, companies need to satisfy their full set of stakeholders before they can become fully successful. At the start of every year, he writes to CEOs on the importance of purpose. But while Larry Fink is a fantastic CEO and a fantastic investor, he hasn't done a rigorous study on correlation versus causation on uh, what causes the link between stakeholder performance and firm value. That's something you need an academic expert to do. Being a great CEO doesn't actually allow you to distinguish correlation versus causation. It's similar to who would we believe about whether a drug is curing a disease? It wouldn't be a CEO of a pharmaceutical company, but she's great at running that company, but not at conducting medical trials. That's a quite different skill set. And particularly now, like within coronavirus, what we have various doctors who are claiming that this cures it or this makes it worse, but they might not actually be in pathology or epidemiology. They might be in quite different fields. So to say they're a doctor, okay, that sounds great, but are the credentials in right in the relevant field? Indeed, I, as a professor of finance, am often asked now, should I buy shares or not in the coronavirus crisis? But that's not my expertise. My expertise is individual companies. It's not markets. So the fact that I'm a professor of finance means that it does not at all mean I have expertise in telling people where to invest their money. So beware of that halo effects. The fact that somebody has um, is a CEO or is a powerful politician like Bernie Sanders or is even a professor. And, uh, and that's why I have beware Professor X shows that because we want to look at, well, what university? Is this professor teaching at? Is this a very high quality university or not? Because that will affect the quality of the research. Do they have the expertise in the related field? Or are they even a professor with um, research expertise? So there's many schools which give the professor title to somebody without a PhD who just happens to be just teaching some lectures there. So we often think it's bachelor's, master's, PhD professor. But actually, you can become a professor at many institutions without having done any research on the topic. Now, let me be very clear. I have tremendous respect for practitioners. Most of what I do now is with practitioners, not academics. But their expertise just comes from something different. It comes from experience rather than rigorous research. So I'm not at all saying that you need a PhD to be able to comment on something. But we just want to know where your expertise comes from. So if there's a professor of medicine claiming that uh, this is a cure for coronavirus, if they've actually got research in that, then I'm more likely to believe them rather than if they're actually without a research background and maybe they were a pharmaceuticals executive. Next point is, do they have a hammer? Are the authors people who have sort of a, a, sort of a one-trick pony, a one-size-fits-all explanation? For example, there are people claiming that if it's an inequality is bad for everything, and if they're claiming that inequality is what caused the coronavirus crisis to be worse in some countries rather than others, right, we need to be aware of that. So why is it worse? Maybe why is the response worse in, say, the US and the UK? It might not be due to inequality. It might be due to the government not taking it seriously or not imposing lockdown measures. It could be things other than inequality. But if people have a hammer, beware of their explanation because they're blind to other potential ones. And similarly, think about, well, who the authors are and would they have released the study if they found the opposite relationship or no relationship at all? So again, if you are people who are known for showing that inequality is important and you release another study 
finding that inequality caused this problem. Would they release the study if they found that inequality had not caused the problem? Probably not, because their reputation is based on inequality. Now, last year, um, I released a report with PwC, which was commissioned by the UK government, finding that share buybacks were not being misused in the UK. Now, I have other research which shows that there are cases in which share buybacks are misused in the US. So you might have thought, well, I would want all my results to show that share buybacks are bad because it's consistent with my existing research. But actually, the fact that I was willing to release this study showing that share buybacks were not bad in the UK suggests that I'm releasing this because that's just what the evidence shows rather than because it supports all of the other work that I've done. Now, you might think, well, it's impractical to check every source, right? even though I've tried to stress that these things are actually not that cumbersome to check, still we have limited time. So what are the ones that we want to be particularly careful about? And if we could only check sort of 20% of articles, which are the 20%? So those are ones that are particularly one-sided, which have claims of clear evidence or universality. For example, going back to the TED Talk on diversity, they said the answer was a clear yes, no ifs, no buts. The data in our samples showed that more diverse companies are simply more innovative, period. So that's an extremely unqualified, unnuanced statement. It always is the case. But it's very rare that something is always good in every particular situation. It might be, maybe in crisis times, you don't want diversity of opinion, you want sort of commonality of opinion because you want people to get a move on and, and respond to it. Equality is better for everyone. I do believe equality matters in, in many fields. That's why my research shows that you should treat your work as well. But maybe it's not better for everyone everywhere. The outperformance of ethical strategies is beyond doubt. I would like to believe this. I've just released a book on the importance of purpose in business. But I write in the book and I acknowledge that actually the evidence is, is much more ambiguous than people might say. So in nearly every issue, there's two, almost two, always two sides. So if somebody is being one sided, we need to be particularly careful because they may have just not considered the other side. They've blundered into their conclusion, either not bothering to check the other side or checking it and burying any evidence which is contradictory. And also, it's not only just the sources themselves, which are one-sided that we want to check, but anything that sort of we are most likely to latch onto, we want to check the other side because we ourselves might be suffering from confirmation bias. Okay, so close to wrapping up now, but let me just give an example to test your skills to see whether you've hopefully taken in some of the punchlines of this talk. So here's an article in the Harvard Business Review, and let's see, well, should we scrutinise it? Joe Bauer and Lynn Payne had me at hello with their new HBR article. What they found was that if more Americans were focused on the long term, investors would have an additional $1 trillion, workers would have 5 million jobs, and the country would have $1 trillion more in GDP. So what's wrong with this? First, had me at hello. So the author is immediately predisposed to thinking that long-termism is a good thing. So he's not even bothering to scrutinize it because he had they had him at hello, because it was a result that he was quite willing to believe he's not gonna check it. Now, the second thing I said earlier was we should check the actual statement, check the evidence. So he quotes a source 
for this $1 trillion claim, which is the HBR article, The Error at the Heart of Corporate Leadership. So, what I suggested earlier, check this actual article, and it shows nothing about $1 trillion or 5 million jobs. There's no evidence there at all, either way about this. Now, then I looked at the rest of the same issue of Harvard Business Review, which had this article, and there was a separate study which did claim this, and it was the study here uh, by McKinsey. So what they do is they plot uh, a company's long-termism measured, amongst other things, by how much they invest and their performance in the future. And what they claimed is that companies that invest more will do better in the future, and that's why they say if all companies just invested more, we'd have $1 trillion more of GDP. But there's a number of problems. First, there's internal validity. That's internally inconsistent. Why? It's not necessarily that more investment today causes better future performance. Maybe causality is in the other direction. Maybe if you think performance is going to be better in the future, you invest more today. And second is what I put in boxes, extrapolating from the differences above. They took, they studied a couple of companies, a few hundred companies, and then they overly extrapolated from that. But you cannot do that. But we can't say if every company invested more, they do better. Let's take Xerox, the photocopier company. If that invests more, it's not going to do better because it's in a dying industry. So the external validity of this is limited. Okay, so my final few minutes before I wrap up, I'm going to completely change tack. So what I've talked about so far is how we ourselves can avoid being misled by some incorrect information. The other thing that we could do is we can encourage externally dissent from others. So how can we do this? Well, first in a meeting, allow juniors to speak first. Because if a senior speaks first, then the juniors might be afraid to say anything which contradicts them. The second is the idea of a golden silence. So many meetings, they send out the memo, the meeting agenda in advance. Now, the problem with that is then people start discussing the agenda with their colleagues. And if a boss has said her views on this, then maybe other people will sort of then start to think about the boss's view. And then if you're, even if your view is different from the boss's, then you're not going to be raising it in the meeting. So in Amazon, what they do is they don't send out the memo in advance. The first half hour of the meeting is the golden silence where they're given the memo and everybody reads it. And so when the discussion starts, nobody has had a preconceived view because the boss hasn't been able to share her thinking on the memo with other people. They're not skewed by it. The juniors speak first and you get a diversity of viewpoints. Sometimes if you're asking for approval, prohibit replies all which are saying, I agree. So I sit and serve on some boards where sometimes we're asked to approve the appointment of somebody for this position. And then the first person who replies all says, I agree. Great appointment. Then other people will then start replying all and saying they agree. And if anybody is sort of disagreeing with this, they're afraid to say so because everybody has started this cascade of agreeing. So instead, just have the replies being in silence, sorry, being anonymous, being um, offline to the particular chair of the committee. And then if indeed they're saying their concerns and those concerns are things that should be discussed, then you can share that. But again, you encourage dissent by having your votes go privately rather than on a reply. Don't put conclusion at the top of a memo. So I serve on an external investment advisory committee where our job is to prove whether a stock should be invested in or not. 
And often at the top of the memo, they will say, are we overall rated this as an invest? And they give all of the reasons and they ask us to approve this or not. And in many cases, you, you like that. Right? They say that a great newspaper article should be the opposite of a mystery novel. You don't want the punchline to be at the end. You want it to be at the start. But here, the problem is, is that, well, if indeed they've said we overall think we should invest in the company, even if they were sort of borderline and on the fence, then I'm going to be reading the rest of the article thinking, how can I justify this invest recommendation? I've already had in my mind this anchor that this is something where the people would like to invest in. And I'm just being asked to sign off on it and rubber stamp it. So I'm going to overweight anything positive and underweight anything negative. And it's the same with equity research reports. So those of you who are investors, you'll know that a broker note from Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs will say at the start, buy, strong buy or something. But even if the report is a little bit nuanced, you might ignore anything which is contradictory. Why? Because the headline has been in your mind and it's fixated something. And so you ignore anything which is contradictory. Finally, don't have discussions on reappointment of people when they're in the room, even if it seems a formality. So again, I've served on boards where we are asking, do we want to reappoint Sarah as a director? And people might say, oh, let's just pretend Sarah is in the room. Who opposes this? Now, clearly nobody's going to oppose this because Sarah is in the room. And they, they might think, well, it's clear that Sarah has been a great director. There's no need to go through the formality of having her leave the room and then vote. Well, it might well be the case that Sarah was a no-brainer. But we don't want to get into the habit of doing this because the next time we do have a case and it's not clear-cut, if the habit is that we allow the person to be in the room, then we're not going to have any dissenting viewpoints. And what if you're the person being discussed? Remove yourself. So I am the managing editor of one of the top 50 journals on the list previously. And at a recent meeting last year, my reappointment as editor was being discussed. And it's an agenda item. And they said, oh, the next agenda item is um, Alex's reappointment. Oh, you're doing a great job. We, 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 uh, we don't, you don't need to leave the room. We'll just approve this. And I said, absolutely not. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to leave the room. And they said, no, Alex, don't. Look, that's just a waste of time. And I said, no, you're not going to stop me. I'm walking out of the room so that they could have a discussion about me. Because if there was something negative, then it should have been discussed. And by me being there, um, that would not have allowed this. So I think that's just important, even if you think a decision is a no-brainer, to give the people the chance to express negative views. Okay, so that's all that I, I, I have for today. Thank you so much for, for staying with me for the whole hour. And I hope that this um, whole talk has taken you on the journey. So I understand that the first half of this was somewhat critical, just highlighting the extent of confirmation bias, but then there's practical ways to try to address this. Now, if I gave the impression that things are bleak because there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of cognitive mistakes, that I think is accurate rather than overly pessimistic. And I think we've seen this, unfortunately, in the current coronavirus crisis, where people thinking that 5G is responsible for it and just vandalizing the 5G towers, or thinking that hydroxychloroquine is a solution and a, a man in Arizona dying from taking it. So because these problems are so severe, that's why we, we, we cannot be lax about um, the importance of checking the facts. And so while some parts of the talk may have appeared sharp, that's only because these problems are so serious that we need the very best evidence to guide us. 
Thank you very much for your attention. Stay well. I look forward to seeing some of you at my next lecture in two months' time on the growth mindset and the abundance mentality. Thank you very much.